0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This month, I detailed the crimes of one predator who plagued Northern California in the years 1999 and 2000. Seven-year-old Ziana Fairchild disappeared on her way to school in Vallejo, California, in December of 1999. Eight months later, another Vallejo grade schooler was also snatched off the streets of Vallejo. But eight-year-old Mithy Sanchez saved her own life when she was able to outsmart her abductor and escape 48 hours later. You can hear both of those cases detailed in episodes 192 and 193. Curtis Dean Anderson was identified by Mitzi Sanchez and brought to justice. While he sat in jail awaiting trial, the remains of Zianna Fairchild were discovered in the Santa Cruz Mountains by a road construction worker, which brought a grim end to a 14-month search for the little girl. Anderson had bragged about kidnapping Zianna to jailmates and also taunted Zianna's family and reporters— whom he attempted to extort in exchange for information. Anderson would eventually confess to the kidnapping and murder of Ziana Fairchild after detectives, sheriff's investigators, and FBI agents collaborated to build a case against him. Anderson received a sentence of over 300 years in prison for the murder of Ziana and the kidnapping of Mitzi Sanchez. Two years after he began his sentence, Anderson, who had been in poor health for some time, would die in prison but FBI agents had several open cases of young girls who'd gone missing in Northern California. A rash of disappearances had occurred between the 1980s and 1990s, and Anderson was investigated to determine whether he was connected to these unsolved crimes. Before his death in 2007, Anderson would confess to seven more murders of girls and young women, but afterward, investigators would be left with questions. Was he telling the truth? And were there other murders that Anderson hadn't confessed to before his death? This is the last chapter in the miniseries, Serial Predator, The Crimes of Curtis Dean Anderson. Northern California can seem like an ideal place to call home. It boasts great slopes for skiing, the perfect soil and climate to produce award-winning wines, beautiful redwood forests, picturesque coastlines, and some of the nation's best schools, including Stanford University and UC Berkeley. The city of San Francisco attracts droves of tourists from all over the world, and the cities of San Jose, Palo Alto, Sunnyvale, and Santa Clara comprise the heart of Silicon Valley, the world leader in tech innovation. The population of Northern California began to boom in the late 1970s and continues to this day. As tech companies like Hewlett-Packard, Apple, and Yahoo began expanding rapidly, people flocked to the Bay Area for high-paying tech jobs and to raise their family in towns and cities all over the northern part of the state. But beginning in the 1980s, certain types of crimes seemed to proliferate on the West Coast. The term serial killer was coined in this era, And if that wasn't terrifying enough, girls and young women began to go missing, some of whom were never seen again. Northern California residents grew concerned when it seemed like every few months another female face was plastered on missing persons posters in their communities. In November of 1983, a five-year-old from Antioch, California, never returned home after leaving a family friend's apartment just a few doors down from her own. Angela Jane Bouguet's body would be found in a shallow grave a week later. Amber Swartz Garcia, 7, was last seen playing in her front yard in Pinole, California, in June of 1988. Her body was never found, and after several suspects were investigated and cleared in her disappearance, the case went cold. Michaela Joy Garrick, age 9, was the next to go missing almost one year to the day Amber was last seen. On November 19, 1988, Michaela was abducted in broad daylight, witnessed by her friend, as the two girls exited a neighborhood market. A blonde haired man who was a stranger to the girls grabbed Michaela as she went to retrieve her scooter from the store's parking lot. The stranger forced her into his car and drove away. A widespread search was conducted immediately, but Michaela was never seen again, and her abductor was not identified. Just two months later, in January 1989, 13-year-old Eileen Michaloff, an aspiring figure skater, was walking to an after-school ice skating lesson when she disappeared from the East Bay town of Dublin. Eileen also vanished, never to be seen again. In the summer of 1991, 11-year-old J.C. Dugard was kidnapped from her school bus stop just a half block from where her stepfather was working in their garage in South Lake Tahoe. Even with the description of the vehicle and the abductor, J.C. would vanish. She was still missing at the time Ziana and Mitzi were kidnapped. J.C. Degarde's kidnapping was the first case I ever covered on Once Upon a Crime. You can hear it in Season 1, Episode 1. In 1993, 12-year-old Polly Klass was kidnapped by a stranger who broke into her bedroom while she and her friend were in the middle of a sleepover. Polly's mother slept in her own room just feet away, When her daughter was carried off into the night. Two months later, her body was found on a roadside over 30 miles away from her home in Petaluma. A recently released ex-convict named Richard Allen Davis was identified as her murderer, convicted, and sentenced to death. A bit further south, Christina Williams, 13, went out to walk her dog on the Fort Ord army base near the Monterey Bay town of Seaside. It was June 1998. When the dog returned without Christina, a search was begun. Christina had vanished. Her remains would not be discovered for seven months, and the case remained unsolved until a suspect was matched through DNA in 2016. In November 1998, 15-year-old Lisa Norell of Pittsburgh, California, vanished after getting into an argument with a friend. She was attending a rehearsal for a friend's upcoming quinceanera celebration, when she abruptly left to walk home. Her body was found eight days later off a local highway. It was determined that Lisa had most likely died of asphyxiation. Police identified a few suspects right away, but charges could not be filed for lack of evidence. The case is still open. As Curtis Dean Anderson sat in the Solano County Jail awaiting trial, And after he was convicted and sentenced to over 300 years in prison, he gave several interviews to local and national reporters, met with detectives, and spoke with FBI agents. He also told lots of stories about his exploits to his cellmates. But his statements regarding crimes he may have committed were inconsistent. Christy Balcamino, a reporter for the Contra Costa Times, spent hours interviewing Anderson. He also wrote her scores of letters. He would admit to hurting others, but didn't outright state he had committed murder. He claimed not to know the names of his victims. The descriptions of the victims, as well as the times and places he described committing the crimes, were difficult to verify. Belcamino asked how it was possible he didn't know if he left his victims alive or dead. Wouldn't you have heard about their deaths later, she wondered? Anderson said that the kinds of people he was talking about, quote, lived in a world where crime was the norm. Some people, even their families, don't care about them, he answered. Anderson believed that even after his victims disappeared, no one had reported them missing. In another conversation Bel recorded in her book, Letters from a Serial Killer, Anderson brags how he never left evidence of his crimes behind. There ain't nothing left, trust me, Anderson boasted, explaining how he got rid of the evidence. Quote, I make up some chemical mixes put them on the places where bodies have lain, and then go through one of them big industrial car washes that sucks all the shit out of the car. There ain't nothing to give me up. I don't save earlobes and fingers like some fuckers, Anderson said, referring to other serial killers he'd read about who'd been caught. Anderson was fascinated by serial killers, and while he wanted to claim himself as a prolific killer like the ones he'd studied, Ted Bundy, Richard Ramirez, the Green River Killer, and the Zodiac Killer— he stopped short of giving the details required to link him to specific missing and murdered people. He would later brag about having met two infamous killers while in prison, Ed Kemper, the co-ed killer, and Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. the Night Stalker. Anderson would give interviews to both reporters and investigators alike, but kept the details vague. Other times, he'd offer more information, but then end the conversation by saying, but then again, I might just be full of shit taunting that everything he'd just said was all made up for his own entertainment. Anderson's attorney, Carl Speakerman, would claim that his client often lied for attention. About these so-called confessions, Speakerman said, "I'm really kind of pissed," he added. "Anderson may have a death wish." Sometimes Anderson tried to barter with authorities for special privileges in exchange for information. But when he was interviewed, he'd fall back on vague statements and half-truths. investigators would have difficulty verifying. In mid-2001, after months of listening to Anderson's lies, brags, and stories that were impossible to verify, Christy Belcamino spoke with FBI agents and criminologists to get their take on Anderson's claims. He claimed to have kidnapped more than 100 people during his lifetime, investigators said. Nine of them he said he'd murdered. Anderson claimed that these victims were between 10 and 20 years old, and a majority of them were runaways. His victims have been plucked from areas both in and out of California. He even claimed that he'd kidnapped people in Mexico and possibly Canada. Some of the details Anderson shared with Bel Camino about committing murder sound plausible. He described how after termination, meaning after he'd killed the victim, quote, there is a letdown. Anytime you get an adrenaline rush like that, there is a letdown. There is nothing else. Not even manufactured drugs can give you that. Unquote. but knowing that Anderson had been a longtime reader of true crime books, particularly those that detailed the crimes of serial killers, much of this type of insight could have been gleaned from within the pages of his preferred reading material. The experts that Bell Camino consulted with for her article, two retired FBI agents and a criminologist, pegged Anderson as a quote textbook psychopath. Anderson loved nothing more than to manipulate others, they said. He was particularly keen to prove himself smarter than the experts, the district attorney who prosecuted him, FBI agents and police detectives that interviewed him, and even his own attorney whose advice he ignored. He continued to give interviews to keep stringing everyone along for attention and as a sick manipulative game, they believed. But he wasn't as bright as he thought he was because in the end, investigators were able to corroborate enough of his stories to charge him with the murder of Ziona Fairchild but some of Anderson's claims did provide enough details for the FBI to decide that these alleged crimes should be investigated. They believe that Anderson fit the profile of a serial killer. He stalked his victims before abducting them and was able to identify and choose those he felt were the most vulnerable. Not just children, but lonely children who might feel lost and were in need of adult attention like Zianna. She'd been swept away from a loving home she'd grown up in for the first seven years of her life, and transported to a strange city where she was left to wander alone among strangers for company. Anderson had also targeted a child living in a foster home, possibly identifying her as particularly vulnerable as well. But he'd made a mistake in choosing 8-year-old Mitzi Sanchez, whose courage and resourcefulness provided her with the skills needed to escape his clutches and end his days as a serial predator. However, the opinion of the experts was that Anderson did fit the pattern of a serial killer, Now the FBI began investigating the details Anderson had provided to determine if he had kidnapped and murdered multiple women and girls since the early 1980s, as he claimed. In one face-to-face meeting with reporter Christy Belcamino, Anderson held up a piece of paper that read, First Kidnap, Rape, Kill, 1984. He later admitted that he had murdered others, possibly up to a dozen. After he was convicted of Ziana's murder, investigators began questioning him about other unsolved cases on the books. Anderson's time was short, and he knew it. His health had been failing for years due to heavy drug and alcohol use. Anderson reported that he'd begun drinking up to a half gallon of hard liquor while still in his teens. His liver would eventually fail, contributing to his death in 2007. In the two years between his conviction for Ziana Fairchild's murder and his death, Anderson would be interviewed by investigators multiple times. He would finally admit to one high-profile unsolved case just weeks before he died. Curtis Dean Anderson confessed to kidnapping seven-year-old Amber Schwartz Garcia in 1988. On June 3rd, 1988, Amber Swartz Garcia was last seen in front of her home on Savage Avenue in Pinole, California, a small town in Contra Costa County, located just south of Anderson's hometown of Vallejo. Amber Swartz was born to Kim and Bernie Swartz. Amber's father was a police officer who was killed in the line of duty just months before Amber was born. Her mother, Kim, raised Amber alone. She then met a man named El Garcia, who raised Amber as his own. Amber's last name was changed to Swartz Garcia, identifying her as the child of both her biological father and the man she knew as daddy. On that June day in 1988, Amber was in front of her home jumping rope. Amber, who had a hearing impairment that required her to wear a hearing aid, was just seven years old and not normally allowed to play outside without supervision. On that afternoon, Kim Swartz made an exception because their neighbors were scheduled to drive up at any moment and Kim was just inside the house. Kim could see her daughter playing with her jump rope when she looked outside at about 4.15 p.m. Just a few minutes later, Amber was gone. (music) The next day, searchers found a pair of pink socks belonging to Amber on a baseball diamond by a creek that ran behind Amber's house. The area where they were found had been searched the previous day. Investigators believe that the socks were placed there later, after the initial search. No other trace of Amber was discovered, and her disappearance remained unsolved. Kim Swartz became an advocate for other missing children. She started a foundation helping other parents navigate the necessary hurdles in finding a lost child, coordinating searches, enlisting the media to share information with the public, and working with law enforcement officers investigating the case. Kim Swartz would volunteer to help when both Sianna Fairchild and Mitzi Sanchez went missing. Police identified a few good suspects over the years after Amber disappeared. Stephen Kiesel served as a priest in more than one East Bay Catholic church between 1968 and 1980. In 1978, he was charged with sexually molesting two boys at a church in Union City. He pled no contest and was given probation. He voluntarily resigned from the priesthood in 1980. He later married and took a job with the Chevron Corporation. He continued to live in the East Bay. Over two decades later, Kiesel was investigated again when three women came forward to accuse him of molesting them while he was assigned to a church in Pinole in the late 1970s. During the 2002 investigation, detectives discovered that Kiesel had lived on the same block as Amber Swartz Garcia at the time she went missing. Kiesel became a suspect and a family vacation home located in Truckee, California, was searched for evidence. After cadaver dogs got a hit on his property, Kiesel's yard was dug up by backhoes and shovels in five different locations on the wooded property. No evidence in connection to Amber's case was found. Kim Swartz said she only remembers Kiesel as, quote, a man who lived in the neighborhood and wasn't convinced he was a good suspect. But, she said, we need to look at the fact That at the point of my daughter's disappearance, he was a registered sex offender who ended up getting his slate wiped clean. That information wasn't made privy to Pinole police when Amber went missing. Had police known, he would have been a top priority. Sexual crimes against children by clergy members have in the past been covered up by the church. Years later, when children began coming forward as adults to expose their abusers, the church's complicity in covering up the abuse led to outrage from the public. Multi-million-dollar lawsuits against the Catholic Church and other religious organizations were filed, and many clergy members were finally convicted of decades-old crimes. Kiesel was eventually cleared in the Amber Swartz case, but would still face several charges of child sexual abuse. In 1985, Kiesel was allowed to serve as a youth minister at another church in Pinole, and his abuse of children continued. He was eventually defrocked with approval of the Vatican in 1987. He was once again accused of molesting children in 2004. A girl told police that the former priest had molested her at his Truckee home in 1995. Kiesel was sentenced and served six years in prison. He now lives in a gated retirement community in the East Bay and is a registered sex offender. It seemed as though Amber Swartz-Garcia's disappearance would remain unsolved. Then, as Curtis Dean Anderson's health deteriorated behind prison walls, and it was clear that his days were numbered, he contacted the FBI and said he had a confession to make. When the two FBI agents arrived to meet with the inmate November 5, 2007, at Corcoran State Prison, it appeared that prison life, or perhaps just his life in general, had taken its toll on Anderson. He was thin, with sunken cheeks and sallow skin, a telltale sign of his failing liver. A life of hard drinking and disease was shutting down his beleaguered organ. Anderson was either finally ready to unburden his soul before what appeared to be his imminent death, or he was hoping for a miracle. He tried to manipulate investigators before, promising to give details about open cases on their books in exchange for medical and dental treatment. However, when the time came to Annie up, Anderson had never provided concrete details as promised. So they weren't sure that Anderson had any good information for them, but as they had a number of unsolved cases in and around Northern California of missing and murdered girls, investigators were willing to give him one more chance to come clean. This time, Anderson did have a real confession to make, and he had details. Anderson sat down with FBI agents, and what he had to say made them sit up straight, listen carefully, and take copious notes. Anderson said he was the one who had kidnapped seven-year-old Amber Swartz Garcia from in front of her home in Pinole almost 20 years earlier. He said his encounter with Amber was random. He just happened to be driving by on that June afternoon when he noticed the blonde-haired little girl jumping rope. She had been wearing purple pants and a printed top. She wore white sneakers with pink socks. Anderson said he'd pulled over and grabbed the four-foot-tall, 65-pound little girl, forcing her into his car. He hadn't planned it, he said. He'd been drinking, saw her, and decided he, quote, wanted some company, unquote. He said he sedated her by making her drink liquor, root beer schnapps, the sweet liqueur he had also confessed to giving to Ziona Fairchild. He said he liked to ply his victims with liquor because, quote, it was better than duct tape. He had plans to drive to Arizona to visit his aunt, and he claimed that he now headed there with Amber as his captive. She was still with him and alive when he checked into a motel in Tucson a day and a half later, he claimed. It was there that he killed Amber by smothering her. He put her body in the trunk of the car and attempted to cross the border into Mexico. Anderson said he was denied entry because he was, quote, too intoxicated. This most likely would have been near Nogales, Mexico, which is the border city just due south of Tucson. He then drove northeast and ended up disposing of Amber's body in a remote area near Highway 10, outside of Benson, Arizona, not far from his aunt's ranch. FBI agents and investigators would spend the next 18 months working to verify Anderson's claims. Of course, after nearly two decades, since Amber was allegedly murdered, they knew it was unlikely they would find much, if any, of her remains. In this, they were correct. No human remains were found after a coordinated search effort. The FBI didn't announce Curtis Dean Anderson's confessed involvement in the schwartz garcia case until after they thoroughly investigated. It wasn't until 2009 that this information was shared with the public. Amber's disappearance was one of the most well-known and high-profile child abduction cases in Northern California, due in large part to her mother Kim's decades-long relentless pursuit for answers. She worked tirelessly to make sure that Amber and other missing children were not forgotten and continued to hope that someday she would discover answers to her questions about what had happened to her daughter. But in the many, many years that Kim Swartz had been seeking justice for Amber, Zianna, and so many other children, she learned that it was easy to become excited when a credible tip came in or police zeroed in on a new suspect, only to have those hopes dashed once more when the information didn't pan out. She also knew that Curtis Dean Anderson had a reputation as a pathological liar who enjoyed taunting the families of his victims. She had become friends with Zianna's great aunt Stephanie Caheliculu and heard the stories about how he'd manipulated and extorted her, promising to reveal Zianna's location, but never making good on his promise. Kim had read the articles Anderson had given to reporters, including one in 2001 printed in the San Francisco Chronicle. In it, he clearly enjoyed sharing disgusting details of the methods he used to kidnap and molest little girls. After he finished confessing to his crimes, he chuckled as he told reporters, Maybe I'm full of shit. I like to keep you all guessing. So FBI agents told Kim that even though they had not found her daughter's body, they believed Anderson's confession. They had verified that Anderson had been in Northern California and near Pinole when Amber went missing. They also corroborated that he had traveled to Arizona as he detailed to them. Stephanie Kahalikulu asked for her opinion about Anderson's confession, said having spent time around the kidnapper and confessed murderer, she had some insight into his thoughts and motivations. It was her opinion that Anderson could certainly have kidnapped and killed Amber Swartz. After learning about the exhaustive research agents had done to verify Anderson's claims as much as it was possible, Stephanie said she believed their conclusion that he was Amber's abductor. However, Kim Swartz, as much as she wanted to learn who was responsible for her daughter's abduction, was not completely convinced. Without remains or any physical evidence to prove Amber had been taken by Anderson, Kim wasn't ready to believe his confession. FBI agents were satisfied that they had solved the mystery of Amber's disappearance and closed the case in 2009, naming Anderson as responsible for her disappearance. Kim Swartz continued to fight to have the case reopened. In 2013, she was successful in having the Pinole Police Department reopen the case. Kim Swartz is convinced that the case will eventually be solved. After Curtis Dean Anderson confessed to the kidnapping and murder of Amber Swartz Garcia, he wasn't done providing investigators with a detailed list of his victims. Anderson claimed that he was responsible for the murders of six other women beginning in 1984. Anderson said that in most cases, he either didn't know or didn't remember the names of his victims. He also claimed to be on drugs or drunk much of the time he committed his crimes, and his memories were fuzzy. Although he said much the same thing regarding the abduction of Mitzi Sanchez. Mitzi would later say that her kidnapper had been in full control of his faculties during her entire two-day ordeal. These are the details that Anderson gave about his other alleged victims. He told investigators his first victim was a female runaway whom he met in late 1984. She was in her late teens or early 20s, he believed. He'd killed her and then disposed of her body near a swimming hole in Marysville, California. A few days after killing his first victim, Anderson said he'd picked up a hitchhiker in her late teens near Clear Lake. He gave no other details about the woman, how she died, or where her body may have been left. A few months later, in early 1985, Anderson described meeting victim number three. She lived in the Marysville area, was also in her late teens, and may have been a runaway from Oregon. In November 1986, Anderson was paroled from San Quentin Prison and ten days later met a woman at a bar in the east Bay city of El Cerrito. He described her as a light-skinned black female about 21 years old. After killing her, Anderson said he disposed of her body in the Oakland Hills. His fifth victim, Anderson claimed, was Amber Swartz Garcia. Then in either 1988 or 1989, he couldn't remember which, Anderson met a Native American woman who was approximately 23 to 24 years old. He said he offered her a ride as she was leaving a bar on 5th or 6th Street in Benicia, California. Like he'd done with Amber, Anderson said he drove the woman to Arizona, and she was also killed and dumped near the town of Benson. In 1991, he kidnapped a female acquaintance who managed to escape after he'd driven her over the state line into Oregon. After he was released on parole in mid-1995, the Department of Corrections forbade him from entering Solano County until his parole period ended. He moved to San Jose and took a room in a downtown boarding house. In San Jose, he began to frequent a bar located under Highway 87 called The Bears. Side note, I live just a few miles from this establishment. It's a dive bar that has been operating at the same location and to a mostly Hispanic crowd for many, many years. Bikers make up the majority of its clientele. It was here that sometime in the first months of 1997, Anderson said he met a Black or Hispanic female in her early 20s. He described her as having track marks on her arm from intravenous drug use. This was one of the only victims he named, identifying her as Rosie Anderson. After he killed his seventh victim, Anderson said he transported her body to the Santa Cruz Mountains in an area somewhere off the exit to Ben Lomond. His eighth victim was seven-year-old Ziana Fairchild. Mitzi Sanchez was slated to be his ninth but she was able to outsmart him and escape, thus ending Anderson's days as an alleged serial killer. Investigators ended their five-and-a-half-hour interview with Anderson to begin to investigate his claims. They made plans to re-interview him once they had more details about unsolved cases that might fit the crimes to which he had confessed. But just a little over one month later, on December 9, 2007, Curtis Anderson died at a Bakersfield, California hospital at the age of 46. Any other information he may have been holding on to that might have helped to corroborate his claims died with him. So can we believe Curtis Dean Anderson's confessions? Was he a serial killer who'd gotten away with kidnapping, rape, and murder for decades before he was foiled by an eight-year-old girl? Would a serial predator serial killer choose adult women for the majority of his victims, but then change his M.O. to prey on very young children? This, at first, made me skeptical about his confession to the FBI. As we know from information gleaned over the years about other serial killers, they don't often vary from their M.O. and type of victim, Richard Ramirez being the exception. But in going over the facts of each of the cases to which he confessed, it seems clear to me that each one was a victim of opportunity, meaning that he chose each one because, at that time and place, the conditions made the abductions fairly easy. Children, of course, are especially vulnerable, which is why parents are usually very vigilant in watching over them. I already described the sad circumstances in which Sianna Fairchild was living. It became obvious after her abduction that she was often left to fend for herself with her mother, Antoinette Robinson, unwilling or unable to care for her and see to her safety. This, unfortunately, made her very easy prey for a predator like Anderson. The first three women he claimed to have abducted were described by Anderson as hitchhikers and runaways. This suggests that they probably got into his car willingly, hoping to catch a ride. The other women, it can be guessed by his description of them and where they met, possibly agreed to a ride or to hang out with him to drink or do drugs. This, of course, if true, made them more vulnerable as well. In addition, where Anderson claims to have encountered these women fits what we know about his travels and places of residence over the years. Anderson worked a variety of jobs during his lifetime, including as a welder, construction worker, a mover, and later as a cab driver in Vallejo. He also worked for an airline returning lost luggage to passengers. He would tell investigators He was very familiar with the Los Gatos and Santa Cruz Mountains where he would later dispose of the bodies of Ziana Fairchild and the woman he met in San Jose, having often traveled to that area to return luggage. One of his earlier victims, a hitchhiker, Anderson claimed he picked up near Clear Lake, California. Anderson had a child who lived with his mother in Clear Lake. Yes, Anderson had girlfriends and even had been married once. In 1981, he married a woman from Vallejo and they had a son together but would divorce after only three years. A year after his divorce, he met the woman from Clear Lake and they lived together for a while. He had a second child with her, but they also split up not long after this child was born. Some who knew Anderson believed his confessions were likely lies he told solely to string the cops along. He had once told reporters that he liked to, quote, mess with the cops. Diana's aunt Stephanie said she had no doubt that Anderson could have killed Amber Swartz, but said it was also a possibility that he was lying, quote, to get a joyride out of it, end quote. This sentiment was shared by many other people, including his own brother. But after carefully considering the crimes Anderson confessed to, I'm inclined to believe that if he had done so for attention, there were many other high-profile cases he could have claimed responsibility for. Amber Swartz was the only well-known case he confessed to. All the others were unidentified women who he said didn't even register in the news at the time of their disappearances. He could have said he was responsible for the abduction of nine-year-old Michaela Garrick, which occurred just months after Amber's kidnapping. However, eyewitnesses had given police the description of a man with long blonde hair, as well as the vehicle description, as Michaela had been taken in broad daylight. He could have also claimed to have kidnapped 13-year-old Eileen Micheloff in January of 1989. There were no eyewitnesses to her abduction, and her case is still unsolved. He didn't attempt to make a name for himself by confessing to these two high-profile abductions, so I'm not convinced his confessions were simply attention-seeking. There was one other detail I found while researching this case that makes me believe Anderson preyed on both women and children during his long criminal history. Besides the kidnapping charge of a female acquaintance in 1991, for which he served a prison term, he had also been charged with making threats against a girlfriend in 1996 and for abducting a woman from a San Jose bar in April of 1999. He was sent back to jail simply on a parole violation after this incident and was released a month later. Six months after he was sprung from prison, Ziana was kidnapped. But two years earlier, in 1997, he has an arrest on record for exposing himself to a girlfriend's child. For that charge, he was given an additional year in jail. This is proof that Anderson had a history of preying sexually on children. It's my theory that as his drug and alcohol use continued to ravage his body and his brain, Anderson began focusing his predatory behavior exclusively on children, who he believed he could more easily overpower to fulfill his violent obsessions. We can thank Mitzi Sanchez, who, at age 8, was able to keep her wits about her after her abduction by Anderson, escape, and save her own life, as well as possibly countless other children's. A few last notes about some of the children who were abducted from Northern California in the 1980s and 1990s. The family of five-year-old Angela Bouguet, who was abducted and murdered in 1983, Finally, received justice when a suspect was identified and charged with her murder in 1996. Larry Christopher Graham was named as her killer based on DNA evidence. Michaela Garrick was abducted from Hayward in 1988 by a long-haired blonde stranger. Her abductor has just recently been identified as suspected serial killer David Emery Mish. Mish's fingerprints were matched to those found on Michaela's scooter on the day she was kidnapped. He was charged with her murder in December of 2020 and is awaiting trial. Mish has also been charged with the double murder of two teens in 1986. Michelle Xavier, 18, and Jennifer Dewey, 20, were abducted from Fremont, California. At the time he was connected to these murder cases, Mish was already serving time in prison for the 1989 murder of a Hayward woman. Eileen Mischeloff's case still remains unsolved. 13-year-old Eileen Beth Mishloff has been missing from Dublin, California since January 30, 1989. Eileen was 5 foot 3 inches tall, 115 pounds, Caucasian with brown hair and brown eyes. She wore braces at the time of her disappearance. She was wearing a charcoal gray Esprit polo sweater, a charcoal gray skirt, and black low-top kid sneakers. She was carrying a dark blue backpack and a black flute case. She vanished while walking home through an alley behind a shopping center that included a furniture store called The Sawmill and Gallagher's Pub. She entered into John Mate Park along a dry creek bed. Her backpack was later found in the creek bed where she was last seen. If you have any information about this case, you can contact the Dublin Police Department at 925-833-6670 or toll-free at 800 635 Six three zero six. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime, and that will wrap up the series Serial Predator. Next month, I'll be back with a whole new series where I detail three individual true crime cases. Once again, I want to thank you for listening and telling a friend about the podcast. I want to especially thank our latest All Access VIP Patreon members. Thank you to Arthur K., Krista C., and Crystal S., you guys rock. Thanks for pledging your support to Once Upon a Crime at our highest Patreon tier level. If you want to support the show and get extra perks like ad-free early release episodes, bonus episodes, exclusive merchandise, and even a shout-out on the show, go to patreon.com/onceuponacrime to find out more and sign up. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. And original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, stay safe and be good to one another.
0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I
1: dot com.
0: Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why.
1: I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say
0: it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing.